Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. Boris Johnson shocked Westminster on Friday night by announcing his sudden resignation from Parliament. The announcement marks a significant moment in British politics with profound consequences for Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. There'll be lots of people dealing with the morality of Boris Johnson and of Brexit, but that's not what we're interested in today. What we want to talk about today is how far who Boris Johnson is has shaped British politics and how far he's been a cipher for a much wider story about what has happened in and around Britain over the past two decades. Hello, hello. Good evening and welcome to Have I Got News For You. My name is Boris Johnson and when I first appeared as a guest on this show, I complained that the whole thing was scripted and fully rehearsed. I'd now like to complain in the strongest possible terms that it isn't. <laughs> it's about the cash for peerages. It because, is. It's shocking. It is shocking. It is I mean, shocking. it's certainly not something you lot would do. I'm not aware of that David Cameron... You're not aware of anything, Mark. <laughs> 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 Maximum pressure! Maximum. Silence! The engines can't take a captain! <laughs> this Boris Johnson was never meant to be let loose on the human kind! <laughs> If we vote leave, we can take back control of our borders, of huge sums of money, £10 billion a year net, of our tax-raising powers, of our trade policy, and of our whole law-making system. The democracy that is the foundation of our prosperity. And if we stand up for democracy, we will be speaking up for hundreds of millions of people around Europe who agree with us, but who currently have no voice. And if we vote leave and take back control, I believe that this Thursday can be our country's Independence Day. God, it's amazing to listen to those clips. I remember watching Boris Johnson on Have I Got News For You all those years ago and being completely confused reading newspaper columns saying that this person could be Prime Minister one day. So if I... I wasn't really aware of him as the, the celebrity. I wasn't quite old enough. 
and it, it just didn't seem comprehensible to me that that was that was possible and of course <laughs> of course it was possible and then speaking to people in the vote leave campaign and in conservative circles after the referendum they would say to me that that moment in the final debate at Wembley Arena where he's making that pitch that kind of optimistic pitch that don't let the doomsayers say that we can't leave the European Union that we can you know believe in Britain all of that 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 was like the culmination of everything about Boris Johnson's personality that was so powerful and they they really think that it it was worth enough votes that kind of if not tip them over the line Boris Johnson certainly was absolutely crucial in that referendum and it's hard to disagree with that well i think we've got to unpack quite a lot of different things here haven't we and maybe we should park for a moment the thought about whether he played his part or played decisive part in the referendum and go back to the have i got news for you yeah era because i think that what we can say about that is that on the one hand, he looks like he's an antidote to you know, the Blair age, which is what Absolutely, was going yeah. on, which was basically a period of like one party dominance and something at least partially technocratic about Blair. I don't think it was straightforwardly te- mm. technocratic. He was always had an injection or tried to have an injection of charisma into it. But Boris was both aspiring to be in the political class, or in some sense he was as, as, an, as an MP, but he was also trying to mock it and, and sort of say, oh, don't take this stuff so seriously. <laughs> yeah, don't take these people so seriously yeah. as well. And then by the time we get though to the Leave campaign, in, in, he's trying to be a serious politician. Now, whether he can be, ever could have been, I think that is part of maybe what we... Um, need to talk yeah. about but i think there is just something frivolous about early boris johnson yeah yeah there's this wonderful jonathan coe piece in the london review of books where i think it's, it's titled sinking giggling into the sea and he talks about this boris johnson as being the culmination of years of satire where politicians just became nothing really but a uh, people to laugh at. They weren't serious figures. They, you know, they, we just held them in disdain. And Boris Johnson's superpower was to satire himself. And I, I was always struck by that thought that he jumped in first and started taking the mick out of himself on air. And so he became likable. You couldn't mock him because he was already mocking himself and he was mocking everybody else. And also, I, think, I suppose my thesis of, of the first half of this podcast is that that superpower that he had was was doubly powerful because of the times, like not just that Blair was a technocratic, you know, dominant figure that required somebody to poke fun at him, but the the whole times um, since kind of 1990, the end of the Cold War, when you have a retreat almost of politics in so many areas, out of migration policy, out of trade policy. It was all supposed to be about what works. Delivery That's, of public services, that was a big theme, obviously, of the Blair years. Yeah, exactly. Reforming them. And then lots of stuff just didn't work. You know, the state wasn't working and big interventions weren't working. Iraq, obviously, and then 2008 and all of these things as we progress. 
But there was something legitimate about somebody just mocking the whole charade because they weren't as efficient as they claimed. I think that there was, but at the same time, right from the start, I think that self-mocking Boris Johnson was also a carefully constructed persona. Yeah, yeah. And so he made it, in that sense, like very easy for the people who weren't entertained by it to take a really rather different view of him. Yeah. I think, though, what we should perhaps focus on for a moment is the relationship between what we're going to call the Have I Got News For You era and him winning the mayoral election. His ability, I think, to to beat Ken Livingstone in 2008, on the one hand, looks like the ability of a politician to go across existing political divisions. Mm. Because we can see, I think, pretty clearly now what a structurally pro-Labour city, Labour city London is. Mm. And there was this Conservative who was able to win the mayor election not just once, but twice. And I think that at the time, there was a sense that in the first time in 2008, that it was kind of like a prelude for the Conservative victory, or not the Conservative victory, but the Conservatives being the largest party in the 2010 election. But I don't think that is actually the right frame to think about it. I think that he won by an conjunction of an ability to appeal to the kinds of voters who would normally really be very uncomfortable about voting Conservative. And he had that bit, as I recall, back in 2008, where he said, thank you to those voters whose pencil would have wobbled as they were voting (laughs) for me. But at the same time, he was actually also, and perhaps more so, exploiting the weakness of Ken Livingstone as a mayoral candidate. Yeah. And that actually what can look like a Boris phenomenon, a Boris Johnson phenomenon, might actually be the weakness of Labour under Ken Livingston in London. And it was not so clear that he fought a particularly good campaign, I think, in 2008. It's not so clear that he could translate that, have I got news for you, persona, into trying to do serious politics in the sense of trying to win yeah. an election that he might have won because he wasn't Livingston rather than the other way around. It is amazing to go back and look at his career and try and pick out what is it, how much of it is Boris Johnson's character and his ability to appeal to those people whose pencils would wobble. And actually, he uses very similar language all the way in 2019 when he he wins the general election, and we'll come back to that. But how much of his career is down to almost luck and there's just a good timing you know that that character worked because of the age in which he was living the failures of the political class at home and abroad and the tiredness of ken livingston by that point the tiredness of the labor government by that point the financial crisis that had come in you know these these when you think about it now all add up to a great atmosphere in which an insurgent optimistic conservative politician could win at that point and and a and a liberal conservative at that point as well you know he was standing there saying that he was in favor of an amnesty for for illegal immigrants uh, he was pro immigration he would say he was also interestingly pro the city right this is what something he was bold enough to 
to be out there sort of defend, saying he was pro-banker in the wake of the financial crisis in 2008. So there, there is always a boldness to, to Boris Johnson. But you, you do wonder now how much, you know, any, any decent candidate with a bit of charisma would have won in 2008. Yeah, I think that him winning those two elections, 2008 and 2012, was only a small part actually to do with him. I mean, I'm not trying to underestimate the, the people in London who couldn't have probably voted for another um, Conservative. I think that there's two things in the in the second, well, the, the end of the first term and the beginning of the second term in, as mayor that are really quite revealing in really different ways. The first of them is is his big sort of opportunity that the Olympics provided mm. because he just won the re-election as mayor and he clearly got his eye on the future conservative leadership yeah and as a stuntman a showman outperformed cameron outperformed at, the everybody, didn't at, at the olympics and particularly the final part when he was handing over to rio was the next oh, yes, the, yeah, the yeah. olympics if, and it, if you go back and and look at the the media coverage of that it was extremely glowing for him when i was looking around i found a time magazine story so american publication just after the olympics and it put as a headline boris johnson the london mayor is the biggest winner of the olympics london 2012 has given boris johnson a signature blend of erudition and slapstick a worldwide platform and hitched his star to an event hailed globally as a triumph. Well, that is that is quite a good, quite a good summary of Boris Johnson. I mean, it's pretty. It must infuriate Tony Blair to put all that work in to get the Olympics, and and to, to others, Ken Livingstone and all all of those. And he he swans in and just says, "Right, this is my show." I remember him dancing, you know, wildly in the uh, in the opening ceremony. I think it was. And he, he I mean, he, this is it. His his star um, charisma pretty much has always outshone everybody he's, who's come into his orbit. You hear that story over and over again, you know, that he was the celebrity pupil at Eton, where this Boris persona first emerges, really. Up until that point, he'd been Alexander, and he still is Alexander, to his family and, and closest friends. And then he's the star a celebrity pupil at Oxford. He's the star celebrity journalist then in the London scene and then Brussels shortly after. So he, he always dominates others through that force of personality and the, the sort of clown-like physical appearance. I, I was always struck when I was near him how sort of the physicality of of the show, it was all, you know, gurning and grunts and facial expressions and very clown-like, I think. And, and for somebody like Cameron, this sort of just dressed as an, in a suit, sensible man, like how, how is he supposed to compete? So I think there there is that. But then there is also that charismatic touch that he had, the optimism, I should say. Uh, you speak to people around Boris who have so at some points been very pro Boris and then have, uh, and at some points been very angry with him in the in the wake of the Brexit referendum and they say his high point was the speech just before the Olympics where 
there was this kind of national panic that it was all falling apart and G4S was failing with its contract and we were having to get the army to come in and do the security. You remember all of those things. And I think Mitt Romney had come to London and had basically said that it didn't look like we were ready and it wasn't going to work. And Johnson gave this speech in, I think it was Hyde Park, where he'd kind of whipped the crowd up saying, what do we think of you know Mitt Romney? What are we, you know, aren't we going to make this the best Olympics ever? And you have this crowd that would now just presumably loathe the man, uh, the sort of young London crowd who were chanting Boris's name. And that people are close to him who are, are sympathetic to him, but have found him frustrating in recent years. They say that is his high point, And you can kind of see that. I think though the other aspect of the mayoralty that was really important and was simultaneously perhaps luck and ultimately you might argue misfortune was the fact that the city of london was central to the way in which david cameron early on was trying to deal with the european union question right because cameron had come in in 2010 and and promised there would be reform of the terms of but in his membership of the European Union. And at that point, Cameron's whole frame of reference was about the position of the city of London and the argument that the Eurozone crisis and the way in which member states of the Eurozone were responding to the Eurozone crisis was a threat to the city's position in the single market. And because Boris Johnson was mayor of London, then he got to participate at a quite high level in the debate about that within the Conservative Party. And he was quite keen, I would say from 2011 onwards, of positioning himself as somebody was saying, Cameron's not being tough enough about protecting the city's interests. And he was willing to say that if necessary, Britain should leave the European Union. It wasn't what he wanted, but if that was what was important to do in order to protect the city, that is what should be done. And it wouldn't turn out as badly as people thought. And I think it was that issue that allowed him to do something that in the end was revealing of his weaknesses, which was to play so much both ways. So on the one hand, yeah. within London, he was playing, I'm the, the social liberal, I'm to the left of my party. Yeah. And yet on the city issue in the European Union membership, he was playing, I'm to the right of David Cameron. And when it comes to the leadership succession to David Cameron, he was mobilising support within the parliamentary party as somebody who was the lead Eurosceptic. Now, obviously, he did have some Eurosceptic credentials going back to his days as a journalist in, in Brussels. And then also, I think, to the issue of the what to do about there not being a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. But I think in the context of what was going on in that coalition um, government, it was his ability to use the city issue as mayor of London that allowed him to position himself as the lead Eurosceptic and to or the most high profile Eurosceptic, even though he wasn't actually in Parliament at the time. It's interesting, isn't it, the difference between the elite level concerns about Britain's European Union membership and the popular concerns about European Union membership. At that time, in 2011, when David Cameron vetoed the European Treaty, which was to do with protecting Europe from the consequences of the Eurozone crisis. And Cameron had vetoed it because they didn't answer his concerns about the protections for the City of London. 
you know, the city of London was incredibly unpopular in, in the UK. It had just gone through a bailout, and then, which had then necessitated the beginnings of the austerity that would, would then last for the next decade. Uh, and so, you know, banker was a dirty word, and yet Johnson is there as a kind of tribune of the people protecting the bankers. It was a kind of odd position. And it, it is something that he continues to mm-hmm. be able to... But I think what he saw probably was that it wasn't so problematic to look like you're defending the city of London if you were tying it to stand up to the European Union position. Right, yeah. Because if you look at that coalition government in terms of the opinion polling, its high point was in the weeks after Cameron vetoed that treaty, even though the treaty then just got redone at intergovernmental level and Cameron's veto was utterly irrelevant. Yeah. They were, the Conservatives were six points ahead in several of the opinion polls immediately yeah. after, and it was only the Omni Shambles budget later that took them back down again. So, I mean, I, who knows how astute Boris Johnson was about reading the direction of travel with the European question, but I think that it was quite possible to see in the aftermath of that, actually being seen as a tough Eurosceptic was a way forward for him in terms of fulfilling his ambition. And I think if we now turn to the referendum itself, there was clearly a lot, or appeared to be anyway, a lot of internal angst about which way that he was going to go. But I think if you look at it in terms of his ambition to be prime minister, once George Osborne, who was his leading opponent for the for the leadership post, Cameron, uh, had gone along with, perhaps reluctantly, gone along with Cameron's strategy about renegotiation and then having a referendum yeah. and campaigning for Remain, then Johnson was going to go into the opposite position because it's quite, in fact, it's, I think it's pretty difficult to see how he could possibly have won the Conservative leadership without moving into the leave position during the referendum. Yeah, in hindsight, it looks completely obvious, doesn't he, that that is the the obvious play to make. If Remain had won, he would have been incredibly well-placed in a sort of way that the SNP have proved to be the beneficiaries of a defeat in Scotland. That presumably what would have happened with Boris Johnson had Remain just sneaked over the line. Cameron's premiership would have been uh, permanently weakened. I, mean, he, I he think probably, the more important thing is, is that Osborne wouldn't have been able to yeah. recover because Cameron had already said that he was going. There was probably only maybe a couple of years left, three years perhaps, yeah. of Cameron's leadership. I think we should go back though to the question of like, does Boris Johnson's personality and apparent campaigning skills really explain what happened in the referendum? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it does a bit. I mean, obviously not. You're talking at the margins, aren't you, in these things? You're talking... Ultimately, there was going to be a large support for leave because of the circumstances in which it was that referendum was happening. We hadn't had a referendum since 75. There was evidently a base level of Euroscepticism in the country. There was international crises happening, the refugee crisis, the Eurozone crisis. There was a sense of loss of control that Europe wasn't working and its own mistakes were potentially going to cost British taxpayers money. And then there's obviously the challenge of large-scale migration since 2004. There was like lots of things that added together made 
calling a referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union in 2011 about the worst time you could possibly pick if you wanted Britain to remain in. So th- that was all on one side of the ledger that Boris Johnson came in. But I, I've always thought about it as a sort of combination of Johnson and Farage, and you needed both. You needed Farage's ability to connect with working class voters, those that UKIP base that he had built up since, well, really 2004, up to about 2015, that growing base um, focused on core issues like immigration. And then you needed Johnson to reach other voters. I think if it was just one or the other, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. I mean, I entirely agree with you that we've got to think, we've got to remember that it was actually two Leave campaigns yeah, yeah. in 2016 and that Johnson was only like participating in one of them. But benefiting from the other. Yeah. I think the thing that's hard about working out whether he's really significant here is, is that I think it's generally hard to work out what the psychology of voters is in referendums and whether they actually do take much notice mm. of the political messages that come from the campaigns. I think in some sense, the whole psychology of referendums is that voters are told you are free from the politicians. Yeah, yeah. It isn't just that you're formally deciding for yourself. and It is that actually you can be unconstrained by your usual political allegiances. And that is why it was possible for there to be a reasonably significant number, not only of labor usual labor voters voting for leave but also actually quite a number of reasonable proportion of SNP voters in yeah. Scotland like voting for leave and i think the other thing that pulls against the idea that johnson was really significant in 2016 was that his very personality and the fact that i think that there was a understanding that if leave one, that that meant that Cameron's premiership was coming to an end, despite the fact that Cameron had promised that he would implement the referendum result, meant that Boris Johnson was going to be prime minister. I think amongst at least a section of conservative leave-inclining voters, that the idea that you voted leave and then you had to oust a government headed by David Cameron, a more reassuring figure in some ways, and then replace it with Boris Johnson, that that actually was a potential deterrent for at least a section of the Conservative Leave yeah. vote. Because it's not a very, you know, if you think that you're part of being a Conservative is some emphasis on stability. The idea that you are having to vote simultaneously for upending the EU order and then removing the government and putting somebody else in, who many of them might not actually have liked, that had potential at least to be a deterring yeah, because I think one of the attractions for people was was actually that you had a once in a lifetime chance to stop the change happening in Europe from going any further. So there was an element of conservatism for some people. And then there is this, as you were saying, like a liberating factor of a referendum that you've got one chance to kick the government. You're, you're free from them. You can do this one thing. Use it. Don't lose it. Don't waste yeah. it. And you saw that with somebody we're going to turn to after the break with Dominic Cummings had become very skilled at actually playing on that sense of power that a referendum gives to people. He'd done it in 2000 and 
five five was it with the oh, northeast no, four. yeah at some point early on in the 2000s he'd done it with the northeast referendum campaign and it was an extraordinary rejection of the Labour Party's devolution plans, the not for a Northeast Assembly. And he'd based it all on kick the politicians, don't, uh, I think he would call it a big white elephant, we don't need more politicians, let's get rid of them. I mean, you can just look at that 2004 campaign and, and it's essentially mirrored in the referendum campaign itself. So we should turn to that and the, this contingency and the figure of Dominic Cummings after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government, and I have accepted. I pay tribute to the fortitude and patience of my predecessor and her deep sense of public service. But in spite of all her efforts, it has become clear that there are pessimists at home and abroad who think, after three years of indecision, that this country has become a prisoner to the old arguments of 2016. And in this home of democracy, we are incapable of honoring a democratic mandate. And so I am standing before you today to tell you, the British people, that those critics are wrong. The doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong again. Just want to bring you some breaking news from here in the UK. Boris Johnson, uh, former Prime Minister, is going to stand down as an MP. He's quitting as an MP. Uh, quote, I'm stepping down forthwith and triggering an immediate by-election. So that was Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister in 2019, eventually realising his life dream, and then resigning from Parliament, not just from the Premiership, but from Parliament last week. His career seemingly over, although obviously he doesn't think that way. I think what's missing, though, obviously, is the, is the period between 2016 and 2019. So from the referendum on which of lots of people assumed that he would very quickly become prime minister if leave won, which they obviously did, um, and becoming prime minister in 2019. So there's this three-year gap, and you have to understand that and the, the continued failures of the political establishment, this political establishment that Boris Johnson had spent his career mocking and sort of winking at the country that these guys were fools, they didn't actually know what they're doing, don't take them as seriously as they want to be treated. 
and they that establishment had reached the peak of its failure in those in those years between 2016 and 19 you've had Theresa May obviously failing in 2017 to win a Tory majority and from that moment on parliament was stuck uh, there was nothing was happening and there was this increasing sense of frustration and stasis in the country almost to a level of just sort of national embarrassment and then that is how Boris Johnson became prime minister but it's very telling to to go back and look at how he didn't become prime minister in 2016. Yeah I mean I think that what we can see in those days after the referendum uh, is that he went missing. Went played cricket I think. Uh, and that in creating you know, a vacuum he introduced even more chaotic forces than were already uh, mm-hmm. in play. And over, a, you know, it looks like 72-hour period, his relationship with Michael Gove unraveled. Yeah. Michael Gove challenged him for the leadership, essentially on the grounds that his Boris Johnson's character was not suitable for being prime minister. Yeah. And Gove couldn't succeed either, in part because he was seen as then being disloyal for abandoning... Johnson and the strange thing in the story in a way though is is that Theresa May gave Johnson another chance by making by making him foreign secretary but then I would say that the story of him as foreign secretary all the way through to him quitting as foreign secretary I think was in was in 2018 yeah over the checkers only after David Davis had already quit is is that is a story of his passivity because he allowed Theresa May to basically center the negotiations around the prime minister's office and exiting the European Union department. You would have thought he as foreign secretary would have insisted on being in the room and, and he wasn't. And then when she reached that interim agreement, which effectively created the conditions that became the backstop and became the reason why it wasn't possible to even think about getting a withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons. He didn't resign then. He let that go. As, as I said, he followed David Davis after the Chequers agreement on the way out. He ended up voting for at least one of those withdrawal agreements or whatever the, whatever term was actually being used for those. Yeah, right. Towards, yeah, he, he voted against the first, first wasn't it? And then he, he, at some point he voted one of the meaningful agreements. He did meaningful votes. That was the term that yeah. I was looking for. And it was only after those European Parliament elections when the Conservatives were reduced to 9% of the vote and the Conservative Parliamentary Party was looking at essentially you know, its historical annihilation in, in some sense that it came back into play. And that it was the voters, the voters who went off and voted for Farage's party in those European yeah. parliamentary elections. And it became clear what would happen to the Conservative Party if it could not get Britain out of the European Union, that he got his chance again. But he didn't make that chance in any no. way. And I think it's yeah. a story about really all his weaknesses as a politician. And in some sense, his inability to use the cause that he supposedly had, which was Britain leaving the European Union and that being a matter after 2016 of democratic principle, he acted as a hopeless champion of that position. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, if anybody made 
the tide that he sat upon. It was probably Nigel Farage. If you if you were yeah. to pick a single political figure who changed the weather, then it would be him, I think. But you're right. You're thinking of Johnson just passively sitting in the, in the foreign office, being essentially pretty useless as a foreign secretary, and then still managing to win the premiership. Again, you come back and you keep thinking in your head, well, what is it? what is it? Is it the character or is it the political weather? And I think there is it's evidently some kind of combination, but it's he is an opportunist. He's an opportunist that that has a sort of faith in his own character. And I, who was it that that said to me when I when I was profiling Johnson that he will rail against anyone who tries to control him because he believes somehow that the diminution of the Boris Johnson character is a, like isn't a personal affront because that is his currency. That's what he needs to get power. Like without it, he's he's nothing. But I think that this is where we do finally, having said we were going to need to turn to Dominic Cummings. Yes, because I think that. What was true during the referendum campaign itself was that he did allow himself to be disciplined in some sense in how he performed by yeah, Cummings. Yeah, he does that with Linton Crosby as well in election campaigns. He and, will do it. And then when it came to him becoming Prime Minister and putting Cummings effectively as his Chief of Staff, yeah. that was his position. And he got off to a much more organised start than many people thought that it would. So the chaos that came later as a style of government wasn't there in that first month, at least. Hmm. Then he was willing, obviously, to do what Cummings wanted about the confrontation with Parliament. Yep. And he was willing to basically fight the 2019 election on the Cummings script of Get Brexit done yeah but pretty much as soon as the election was over from what we can see um that his and cummings relationship fell apart and that he was trying to assert his boris persona into proceedings in a way that meant that the operation he was running was going to be very chaotic simply because that wasn't a basis on which Cummings was going to work with him. Yeah, I mean, if Boris has that sort of winking, wry cynicism about human nature and about politicians and the system, because he's essentially been in the system his whole life and he doesn't look at these people and think they're particularly amazing, but he doesn't want to tear it down. Dominic Cummings has just genuine contempt for the politicians and the system and thinks it's useless and they're useless and that they don't know what they're doing and the system is broken. So for a for a short period, it came together. And we should really think about that period from when Johnson becomes prime minister to his election victory. It is a, an extraordinary moment in British politics because he did inherit the same structural challenge that had defeated Theresa May in a parliament that was locked, a Conservative Party that didn't have a majority, less a majority for leaving the European Union on a set of terms, any set of terms. There was not a single way of leaving that could garner a majority in the House of Commons. Theresa May had tried. I guess some people say that there was a super soft Brexit that Theresa May could have offered that 
possibly would have had Labour support. I don't uh, think so. No, and it, and it would have destroyed the... the I mean, aside party. from anything else, in that period leading up to those European Parliament elections, that's what she was trying to do with those seemingly endless discussions with... Yeah, yeah, um, and the Labour wouldn't Keir do Stalin. it. Because it wasn't, it wasn't in their interest, it was it? No, it was, Cor- it was Corbyn, Corbyn. Still, yeah. But Starmer was obviously there in yeah. his shadow. I say it wasn't in their interest, it probably was in their interest, looking at what happened in 2019. But he... Johnson, if, whether it's true or not, Johnson believes in the power of personality to change things, impose his own power, that he can get a better deal, he can do things. And I think it is a like an intellectual test for us to say, to ask how much of that is true, because he did get the same circumstances as Theresa May and then managed to get a Brexit deal that somehow passed. the com- He bullied the Commons eventually into, I think there was a vote pretty much in favor of his deal that then sparked the sort of collapse in opposition to having an early ref- early general election. It was the Chukaramuna and the Lib Dems eventually granted him that and then it all started to fall apart and then he got his election and that's the way he bulldozed his way out of that problem in a way Theresa May couldn't. I think it's quite difficult there to imagine that any other potential conservative leader at that point could have got the Conservatives out of the hole that they were in yeah. in the end of Theresa May's premiership. And perhaps it also, from their point of view, needed a Cummings-style person as well, that it did have to be Johnson plus yeah. Cummings. In terms of the willingness to stage the kind of confrontation, not only ultimately with um, the House of Commons, but effectively with the Supreme Court, Supreme, dragging yeah. the Queen. Yeah into yep. proceedings with the attempt to dissolve. And the, the sort of chutzpah to do the deal that he did. You remember he, he got uh, Leo Varadkar over to Cheshire and they met and they did this deal which was essentially going all the way back to the Theresa May's agreement that we talked about, the joint report from December 2017 which set the parameters from which no government has ever been able to escape. He essentially went back and accepted this border in the Irish Sea and then managed to sell it as not being a border in the Irish Sea to enough people who perhaps they were just willingly credulous at that point. They were just wanted to get it over. They knew that they were in existential danger. I think the only only issue from who he really had to sort of, in some sense, deceive there were actually the Democratic Unionists because... In terms Although of they weren't deceived because they they were well, the ones who yeah. then said I see through this everybody yeah. else or the Conservative yeah. Party Steve Baker and all of those they but were willingly deceived I don't think that I'm not entirely sure that well it's an open question isn't it who was deceived and who was just like saying we don't actually care enough about the Northern Irish question yeah we simply well, care a lot of that yeah about getting the United Kingdom and Britain yeah we'll pay making this a price, distinction yeah. to get Britain completely out of the single market but I think. On the election, the 2019 general election, I think what was interesting there was that Boris Johnson, I don't think, did have a particularly good campaign. I think that this idea that he's a good campaigner Mm. is a bit erroneous. I think the only one way you could say that he performed what he needed to do to try to win, from his point of view, is the, the, the referendum campaign I think he got into various messes in the 2019 general election. But again, what saved him, I think, was the fact that he 
at least understood that enough voters were not willing to accept Brexit not happening and or not willing for Jeremy Corbyn to be yeah. prime minister. Again, amazing, amazing luck for him to, yeah. to, have, to have had a parliament that failed so badly that people were willing, you know, just to, to get Brexit done, that, that slogan worked and forget the whatever issue was going on in Northern Ireland. I mean, voters, I guess, have always been willing to forget yeah. what was going on in Northern Ireland. I don't think that bit surprising. No, no. And then Jeremy Corbyn, this sort of unique character, although, although I suppose and Theresa May had not been able to defeat Jeremy Corbyn. But I do think, I come back to this question of, well, how much does he then actually change things? Because... He believed that he could just come in and get a better deal than Theresa May and Ollie Robbins and all of those people. And he did add certain things into the, the Northern Irish deal, add a certain element of democratic consent. control, yeah, consent, which was which is important. And then Rishi Sunak built on it later. But really, he didn't change the fundamentals. He just was able to embody a fight with Europe and a fight with the commons and appear to be on the right side for people. Like he was there. He he was their man fighting the right fight, even though he didn't actually change anything historically. He But I, I think that you've got to separate out the question from the terms of leaving to the actual exit itself. Yeah. Because I think that what is true is or is probably true at least, is that if Johnson hadn't won the Conservative leadership election that summer, then I think that the Conservatives would have been stuck in a position where they were you know, wrecked for a, a generation. Yeah. Now, you might yeah. argue that that is also where we've got to now, <laughs> post his premiership, given the fact that the Conservatives then not only produced three Prime Ministers over the, essentially over the course of a summer, um, <laughs> but one of them got into an almighty economic mess yeah. as well, from which, in terms of polling, the Conservatives haven't recovered Which um, Johnson since. still supports. But I still think that if we're trying to look at it historically, we would have to say that he saved the Conservative Party yeah, in, yeah. The, in the summer. And probably it, Brexit, I guess. Yeah, in the, yeah. Yeah, well, both, yeah. yeah. In, the, in the six months between the summer of 2019 and December of 2019. I think then what's interesting, though, is you could argue that the implosion with his relationship with Cummings came so early in yeah. the post-election premiership, i.e. before the pandemic was really having an impact on British politics, that although it was the pandemic that brought to the fore the problems of Boris Johnson's character under certain political conditions, I want a rules orientated, that the force of chaos in his premiership was probably there regardless of the pandemic. It might have taken longer to play itself out to its destructive. Yeah conclusion it was a, it was an agent that just sped everything up if it sped the sort of the inevitable destruction i mean you couldn't have, from his point of view if we think of this as a story generally of good luck yeah. you couldn't have had worse luck <laughs> than yeah. having something whereby he had no real choice but to do something that went strongly against what i think are certain liberal instincts that yeah he has 
And then the idea that he himself had to be seen to be keeping rules. I mean, that is <laughs> the worst nightmare that a politician like Boris Johnson can have because he's incapable. He's, he's clearly psychologically in, incapable of being disciplined and constrained in that kind of uh, way. And it was such a terrible conjunction or disjunction, which I want to think about it, between the way in which he'd appealed to leave voters of saying, you know, I'm on your side and not on the side of the parliamentary class. Yeah. Enough of it anyway, that's trying to defeat Brexit. And then basically saying, well, I'm above you all because you these rules I make, they're for you, but they're not for a big person like me. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, I, I wonder whether that was always going to happen though, because he's so psychologically conditioned to rub up against any sense of authority that is not him. He doesn't want to tear anything down though. That's the interesting thing about Johnson. He's not a revolutionary. He likes to be the sort of chaotic spirit within the establishment that he can, he's the, you know, as we talked about before, the celebrity, you know, the, the number one student at Eton and then at Oxford, and then the number one, you know, he's the editor at The Spectator, and then he's the mayor, and then he's the prime minister. You know, he wants the establishment positions. He's not trying to get rid of the establishment. But once he's there, he still holds that sort of contempt for anybody else. Like Macron, he's got his feet up on the desk. He wants to look at Macron with the same level of kind of mocking contempt that he has for everybody else. And these things start to be a problem when you're a prime minister because, A, you've got to get things done and you've got to then impose rules on other people and you've got to be seen to abide by those rules, as happened in COVID. As you say, this this ultimate nightmare for, for a character like Boris Johnson, somebody so unsuited to that time it's hard to think of anyone less suited it's hard to think of a prime minister who apart from Liz Truss who would have been less suited to that time in history but I think he was also though ill-suited to the economic space that had emerged regardless of COVID because on the one hand you can say look he had positioned the Conservative Party in 2019 in that national conservative going back to Disraeli yep. tradition that we, we talked about some episodes ago and he clearly in some abstract sense had an idea of connecting net zero politics to levelling up Yeah. but if you think about what we were talking about in our Made in China 2025 episode last week the idea I think that Boris Johnson was going to understand or engage in any way whatsoever with the detail yeah. of what industrial mm. policy for Britain might mean in a made in China 2025 <laughs> era. Forget it's just it. funny to think just about. Just forget it. I think there's something that's true that the Conservative Party generally is just not equipped to deal with that. There's too many people in the Parliamentary Party in particular that still got a, a free markets narrative. Yeah. in their head. But even though Johnson was, in one sense, rejecting that with the levelling up position, he still didn't know how to do you know, post-made in China 2025 No, Cummings politics. would have eventually been so frustrated by that that he would, have, he would have left even without the pandemic. I mean, Cummings has this you know, righteous fury with the state and its failures, and he has this idea of the, the kind of Britain that he, he wants to see built. There is a certain coherence to it, and it's linked to levelling up and having more powerful centres away from London and all of those things. And Johnson kind of just instinctively got it. I remember this moment with Johnson where he said to me that he was surprised at how much levelling up had caught on. You know, as if he was just kind of, he'd said lots of things 
and then this one had worked. This one fit the moment, 2019 and post-Brexit levelling up and the right voters for his coalition that he needed to become prime minister. And yet there's, there's not much more commitment in the Conservative Party to that than than that really is just Boris alighting on something as we've seen with the, the the shift since. But interestingly, we've seen the shift with with Johnson himself since. And this is where I wonder what you think about. We we finish maybe on 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 what's going to happen in the future because he's outside of Parliament now. We're on his way out of Parliament without a seat with a leadership that is opposed to him, fearful of him a parliamentary party that is losing Johnson allies as they quit. So his his base is becoming weaker. It's harder to see how he gets back into Parliament. But there is obviously an opportunity if Labour win the next election and the Conservative Party are desperate and looking for somebody to return to. But what I noticed about his resignation letter was a kind of was something that was different from previous iterations of Johnson, where he was this optimistic chancellor, an, an opportunistic uh, optimist. He'd surf, you know, surf whatever wave was there and find a way of, of making it work for him. And now he's he seems angry and confrontational and conspiratorial and not really populist at the moment. I mean, I wonder if this goes back all the way to the start and we were talking about how he managed to make defending the bankers of the city of London somehow populist cause whether he will be able to do it but he sounded like he was supporting a kind of trust agenda in his resignation they're talking about the need for a free trade deal with america and low taxes and all of this kind of thing that's not where donald trump is going he's talking about gender and trade wars with china and things that have a resonance at the moment johnson's doesn't seem to have to me well i'm not sure that thinking about johnson in populist terms gets us like very far because I think that in terms of the political success that he had in the 2019 period, which is really a pretty short period of time we're talking about, <laughs> yeah, and it's such a roller coaster that goes with it, is is it's so tied to Brexit, it's so tied to that question about democracy and Brexit. He's not going into that space that other people like Trump are getting called populist uh, who are going into. And I think that the thing about his optimism narrative is as I think that it's as much constructed as pretty much everything else to do with him in his public persona. So he wants to personify a can-do spirit with a certain like free-spiritedness yeah. with it. But I don't think inwardly he comes over as someone's a particularly optimistic person no. he seems much more sort of in in some sense in in turmoil sad yeah the, the, uh, sad eyes but I, I i think that what he's run into leaving aside you know his the issues with his character is that gung-ho optimism mm. of just oh there aren't constraints details don't matter it's just not going to cut it in the political world as it is, I think the sense of the economic and the political world being a dangerous place yeah, yeah, yeah. is too strong for that. And although he sort of tried to run a version of it in terms of the depth of his support for Ukraine and his personal relationship with Zelensky, I, I don't think that that's 
a position in which he can reinvent himself as a conservative politician as a in the future, man, even yeah. after assuming that Labour do win the next election. I just don't think that that's sort of trying to tie gung-ho optimism to the war in Ukraine and make that a rallying call for democracy. I don't think in Britain that that works. Yeah, he sees history, I think, in this really cynical way that it's really we're all quite irrelevant. We're here for the blink of an eye and we don't. none of us really matter. And, and that's this contradiction between the optimism and the pessimism. He's, he's, I think, ultimately deep down a cynic about human nature and how we're all fake and we're all faking it and we're just trying to climb to the top of the greasy pole. Everyone's doing it. I'm no different. And it doesn't matter anyway because it's all going to be washed away in the tide of history. And he just has this notion of this wave and it really all you can do is just just jump out of the wave for a millisecond and just be seen for a second a split second and i do wonder whether he realizes that that split second is over and he's back in the wave no i think that it absolutely is over and that even the moment that he thinks was his split second was actually as much the creation of other people and circumstances <laughs> yeah. it was really was anything to do with him and on that we'll see you next week hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part they're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share on social media and shout about it to your friends and family.